Turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 3, and uh, this week we're just going to spend a little bit of time preparing together as a community for the celebration that's coming up uh, two weeks from today, on June 24th, our baptism down at the river on Sunday evening. And so um, we have this kind of annual festival, a celebration that we as a church participate in together, and uh, instead of it just kind of sneaking up on us, we wanted to create a space this Sunday um, to get ready to celebrate and to, uh, to call each other into it, a kind of a, a time to, to get together and have some fun, but also hopefully dive into the significance of what baptism uh, represents. And so um, in the passage that Becca read for us, it's a familiar passage to many of us, and it's sort of the beginning of Jesus' uh, public life. Um, up until this point, he's been uh, fairly anonymous, has lived a quiet life in a small town. And uh, now um, John the Baptist, who we know is his cousin, has been kind of anointed as this personal prophet of Jesus. And John the Baptist has been paving the way for the long-awaited Messiah King of Israel. So the idea is that like, if Jesus is the headliner, John is the opener. And kind of getting the crowd warmed up and ready to receive God's promised uh, King. And so we're told that John's message, as in verse, uh, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3, is primarily a message of repentance, that he's standing out there, this hairy, weird dude from the wilderness, and as people come and have this kind of anticipation that God's redemption story is about to take a whole new step, the message of John is repent for the kingdom of God is near, for God's king, God's rule and reign is about to break into the world in a way that we've never seen before. And so the invitation in preparation for encountering Jesus, the king, is a command to repent. Now what does repent mean? We have probably a basic idea that it means to say that we're sorry or to apologize or to confess our sin and to maybe work on a pledge or a commitment to not sin anymore. And there is something to all of that. But uh, our friend Gary Brashears, who was here two weeks ago walking us through the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the definition that he gives is that to repent is to have a change of mind about who's God around here. There's a shift, not just in behavior, although it certainly extends to that, but my whole mindset would change. That there would be a turning, a U-turn, a change of mind, not just about what's good, bad, right, wrong, up, down, but who's God around here in my life? Who has authority in my life? Under whose kingdom, under whose rule, under whose reign, under whose command am I going to order my life? And so we just finished two months walking through the Sermon on the Mount as a church. And by the way, last week when I read uh, the entire Sermon on the Mount, um, that was one of the most difficult things I've ever done as a pastor. Partially because it felt like acting, and that's like terrifying to me. It was like Sermon on the Mount charades or something, and that's like the worst thing I can ever imagine. It was also terrifying at a level where uh, we had to assume that we are in the crosshairs of those that Jesus is warning are in danger of missing his kingdom. Right? 
And it's the same message that John the Baptist had been preparing his people for, the people of God. Repent. Change your mind about who's God in your life, about where your authority is and who you're going to trust to build your life upon. And so for any of us that have heard the gospel of Jesus and have then wondered what must we do in response to this good news, this is consistently throughout the scriptures the first thing that uh, the proclaimers of the gospel would insist. That when you come in contact with Jesus and his kingdom, the first thing that we would do in response is to repent. To repent. It's the first thing we do. Now, here's a question for you. Some of us have been Christians for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Have you repented? Have you repented? Well, yes, right? If you are those that belong to Jesus and are included in him, then through faith and through repentance, we've entered into the kingdom But have I completely repented? Have I recognized all of my sin, all of my rebellion, all of the ways that I'm bent away from God to be the king of my own life rather than to live in his kingdom? I have repented, but have I repented? I haven't, and you haven't either. This is an ongoing invitation and command. Not just repent and become a Christian, but as Martin Luther would say, that all of Christian life is one of repentance. That we never graduate beyond repentance. We never get past the point where we no longer need to wrestle with where is my allegiance, who is my God, who am I trusting, and who am I, am I obeying. And in fact, I would argue, and it's been my experience, is that the longer that I walk with Christ, in some ways, I'm more and more assured of my belovedness and my acceptance in him. In other ways, I'm more aware of my sinfulness. That the more I start to understand who I really am and who he really is, there is this humbling uh, awe that comes over. And so this need to repent is something that becomes part of the long-term kingdom life that we're invited into. And so John the Baptist is preaching this message of repentance and he's calling people then to be baptized. And those that are being baptized are being baptized for the repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But the question that I have then when we come to this passage is, well, why would Jesus need to get baptized then? Because it seems to me that he's the only person in all of history that actually doesn't have anything to repent of. He's the only one who's been incredibly clear for his entire life about who really is God around here and has lived in perfect submission to the Father, empowered by the Spirit, and inaugurating God's kingdom on earth. What does Jesus have to repent of? Why would Jesus enter the baptismal waters of repentance? And if we're confused by that, then we're in good company because John seems to be just as confused. He's going, why would you be baptized by me? Right? So that's the same question John's asking in verse 14. 
He's just as confused as we are. And so how does Jesus respond? Jesus says in verse 15 of Matthew 3, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Okay? Um, If I'm honest, that doesn't clear things up for me. But John, (laughs) then John consented. Okay, so apparently John's got a little bit more detailed understanding of what's going on here. He seems to get it, but we're still trying to catch up. So real quickly, let me try to get us there. In John's baptism, sinful people, and don't just think sinful in terms of I do bad things, but think of sin in terms of a disease, something that all of us are infected with and affected by in one way or another. Okay, so sinful people are baptized into this river as an act of repentance to receive the forgiveness of their sins. And one of the ways that the Bible describes sin is as, not just as a disease, but actually as like dirt or as filth, something that tarnishes or, uh, or, or dirties us, something that we need to be cleansed of. And so if sin is dirt, then baptism is also depicted in the scriptures as a bath that cleanses you. You go under the water as a filthy person, you're washed or cleansed, and then you come up uh, clean. Now, by the way, again, when we talk about receiving the forgiveness of sins, we immediately think all the bad things I've done, and yes, those are part of what it means that we're sinners but we're also talking about the sins that have been done against us. And we're also talking about the sins that we've been exposed to, that have defiled us. And I I think it's important to go, when we receive forgiveness and cleansing from sin, it's actually way bigger and better news than we ever could have imagined that the ways that we've been hurt, mistreated, abused, whatever recipient we have been of someone else's sin, Jesus wants to cleanse us of that as well. It's not necessarily an instantaneous process, but it's an invitation to be made whole, to be healed, and to be covered by his grace and by his mercy. And so that's the first picture we see of John's baptism, one of repentance and forgiveness, that we need to be cleansed. And so we go into the water, we come up, and uh, you're all cleaned up. And so that's what's happening in Matthew 3. People are going to John in the Jordan. He's baptizing them, bringing them up as cleansed. Now, here's what's interesting. If you'll just kind of follow this literally for a moment, um, where do their sins go? Where do their sins go? Well, I don't personally take a lot of baths anymore. I have, maybe you do, no judgment if that's your thing. Um, our kids still do. And what happens when you put a dirty kid in a clean tub, right? The kid comes out clean and the tub ends up dirty, right? All the grime, all the toothpaste, all the yogurt, all the stuff stays in the bath water and the kid comes up nice and clean. So I think the picture here that the author of Matthew is giving us is that 
sinful, dirty people in need of cleansing are dunked down into the rivers, the waters of the river, and they come up clean, but their sin is left in the waters. And Jesus says, I want to be baptized in that water. And John's still going, wait, why? Why should I baptize you? And Jesus says in verse 14, to fulfill all righteousness. So here's what happens. When sinful people get baptized, they come out clean. But what happens when a sinless person gets baptized in the same water? They come out dirty. And so here's what's crazy. Jesus' baptism works the exact opposite way of our baptism. We are baptized into his righteousness. That we are joined with death in his, with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And when we come out of the water, our sins are forgiven. We are cleansed. We are healed. We are accepted and loved by our Father. But when Jesus, the pure spotless lamb, the one sinful person who never had anything to repent of, goes into that same water, he's defiled. He assumes guilt and shame and exposes himself to the brokenness of humanity, the injustice of the world, the pain, the guilt, everything that we know of. He takes it upon himself and he gets infected with our sin. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul famously, I think, sums up this incredible invitation of the gospel. He says, we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. So this, hopefully you're recognizing this language of reconciliation now, central to the invitation that we have is to be reconciled, restored to a right relationship with God. How can that ever be possible? Is it by our good works, by our attempts, by our uh, good behavior? No, here's how it works. That God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, you've probably seen that verse before um, and maybe theologically have an understanding of what that might mean, but I want to ask, chronologically or biographically in the story of Jesus, when do you think that happened? When did Jesus become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God? I think most of us would assume, well, that probably happened on the cross or maybe in the incarnation, I would argue that I think this happens in his baptism. That in his baptism, Jesus immerses himself in the sin of humanity. He becomes not just uh, the victim, but also the perpetrator of the sins of the world. And it's a crazy idea. It's hard to even understand. But... He doesn't just say he became sinful, but that somehow Jesus became sin in and of itself. And so we know the story doesn't end there. We know that 
uh, he comes up out of the waters. He begins this life of inaugurating God's kingdom on earth. Where he sees sickness, he brings healing. Where he sees death, he brings resurrection. Where he sees injustice and oppression, he brings freedom. Um, But then eventually, he takes these sins of the world to the grave. Death upon a cross, buried as a criminal, as a rebel. And then we know the story doesn't even end there, but he comes back to life in the resurrection. And there is the other bookend of this story. What begins in the baptism of Jesus immersing himself in the sin of humanity and coming out unclean on the other end of the story is buried in the tomb but comes out clean and the sin stays in the ground. Beautiful picture. And so why? He was baptized into our sin so that we would be baptized into his righteousness. Now, I'm not sure that John understood all of that when he consented. I'm not sure that he got how this story is going to go, but he got it enough to say, okay, let's do that. If you're going to fulfill all righteousness, if you're going to save the world, it's probably worth me baptizing you. So, Jesus' baptism is the foundation for us to begin to understand the invitation for us to also be baptized. So the first thing I'd say is that when it comes to our baptism, it's incredibly important to understand that baptism isn't something we do for God. Baptism is actually something God does for us. It's something that we receive It's a gift of grace that because Jesus was baptized in the sinfulness of humanity and then in exchange gives us his righteousness, our baptism is not something we do for him. It's a gift we receive. So every week when we invite you to the table, hopefully by now you've heard this idea that we don't take communion as if we have to pry grace out of God's clenched fists. We receive communion because he is generously and graciously offering himself to us. It looks the same on the outside. And if I were to try to keep score of whether you're taking it or receiving it, I'm not going to be able to tell. But there is a difference in terms of what we're experiencing internally. And so along with the Lord's table, baptism is one of the other universally agreed upon means of grace within the Christian tradition. Communion is a means of grace we receive multiple times, weekly or regularly throughout the course of our lives. Baptism is a means of grace we receive, are meant to receive, just once. At the beginning of our uh, life in the kingdom, at the beginning of our process of repentance and faith and reorienting our life around Jesus as Lord. And so we don't get baptized for God but God gives us baptism as a gift. And the beautiful thing is that every time a sinner is baptized, the story of the gospel, the story of redemption is retold. That his death, his burial, his resurrection, we are now saying it's not just that I believe Jesus lived, died, and rose again, it's that I lived, died, and have risen again in Christ. 
that he's done it for me. And I am now with him and I am now in him. And so baptism is how the New Testament invites people into this new kingdom, this new humanity, this new way of living and being in the world. And so just like Jesus identifies himself with us in his baptism, we now identify ourselves with him in ours. So uh, here's what I'd say. There's three types of people in the world. Those who like Neil Diamond, just kidding, not that. Non-Christians who haven't been baptized, Christians who have been baptized, and Christians who haven't been baptized. Um, I don't know if we have any other categories. Those are the three types of people. I would argue that uh, in the New Testament, in the day of the early church, in Jesus and the apostles' teaching, um, there are really only two types, types of people, baptized or not. Um, and this may sound like a harsh thing to say, but it's, uh, it's pretty clear to me in the scriptures that in the New Testament, there is no category for an unbaptized follower of Jesus. The Bible doesn't have that category. Now, immediately some of you think of one exception, right? Who's that? The thief on the cross. If you want to follow that guy with your life, then you can. I'm going to say there's a better way to go. Now, in general, every time the gospel's proclaimed and people are invited to reorient their life in faith and obedience around the kingship of Jesus, the invitation is repent and be baptized. This is how you come in to the kingdom. Repenting of who's got, who, the wrong God around here, professing your faith, confessing Jesus as Lord, and initiating or inaugurating that relationship through the act of baptism, through receiving the gift of baptism. So the reality is that in the early church, if you were to go around claiming to be a Christian, but you hadn't been baptized, people would think you were crazy. They would look at you like you're nuts because they didn't have a category for a non-baptized follower of Jesus. And so, uh, listen to Acts chapter 2, one of the first times in the wake of Pentecost that the, that the gospel, the good news about Jesus is proclaimed. Peter gets up and he goes, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Okay, so he proclaims this good news. When people had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said Peter, and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off and all for whom the Lord will call. And with many other words, he called them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to the number. Point, baptism was considered, damn, I thought that was going to be way smoother. I had to sniffle, and I turned off my mic, and then I confused you back there, and I apologize. I got a runny nose going, and I don't know what else to do, so... Uh, thanks for hanging with me here. Gosh, you'd think I'd be better at this by now. But um, 
So here's what's crazy. In the early church, this was the normative response. If you wanted to receive Jesus and become part of Jesus' movement and community in the world, that baptism is how you did that. In repenting, in believing, and being baptized, you are kind of initiated into this new family and identified with Christ. And we know that this came at an incredibly high cost to many of the first disciples of Jesus. And in fact, it continues to around the world today. There are those, many throughout history, millions throughout history and in many places in the world today, that to be baptized as a Christian is going to cost you significantly. That you will be, the, you will be persecuted that you would be fired, you would be imprisoned, you would be tortured, and for many of these early Christians, it literally meant they would be put to death, executed, because they were claiming Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is, I'm being baptized to identify with him, even if it means my life. So that's how seriously they took it. Even though I know this might cost me my life, I'm still so committed to the God of this kingdom that I'm going to follow through and receive the gift of baptism no matter what. And so if you would come to Jesus, then you would get baptized. And anyone who claimed to be a Christ follower but hadn't been baptized would basically be considered a phony. The only exception, there is one exception, that those in church history, when someone's faith was considered legit, even if they hadn't been baptized is if they had been martyred for Christ. It's like, yeah, they weren't baptized, but they did get burned at the stake, so I bet they were actually a Christian. That's how serious this was. You were probably for real in that case. Now, is that how we see baptism today? I would argue that over the years we've developed, at least kind of in the tradition that most of us are part of, we've developed a much more laid-back attitude towards baptism. That it's probably something, yeah, that most Christians should do at some point, but um, if it meant going to jail, then we'd probably find a way around it. And so we've created this third category of the non-baptized Christian. And, um, And I would argue that we're living then inconsistently with the message of Jesus and with the story of the church that we're part of. And so the best way I can describe it is that baptism is to being a disciple of Jesus as a wedding is to being married. Okay? Now, I'll I'll be honest. I may have said this before, but I have, my view of baptism has grown over the years. And I used to say that baptism is like your wedding ring, right? That you can be married and not wear a ring, or you can wear a ring and not be married, but it's kind of just best to be married and wear a ring, right? Um, I now say, yeah, baptism isn't the wedding ring, it's the wedding. It is the public ceremony, the exchanging of a covenant, the receiving of a new Uh, identity-shaping relationship that's going to forever alter the trajectory of your life. And so in a wedding, when I do weddings as a pastor, I pronounce you husband and wife. You are now one flesh. You are now something that you weren't before. 
And you can have a big wedding or a small wedding or a private wedding or whatever kind of wedding, but you can't be married if you don't get married, right? And you can't be married in general. You have to be married to someone. And that's how big of a deal baptism is in the Bible, that it is the wedding between Christ and his church and between each of us individually finding our place in loving covenant communion with him. So I'd argue it'd be pretty messed up if on your wedding day a uh, young man told the young lady, hey, I decided I don't really want to get married. I still want to be married to you, but I just... Game four's on, and I don't want to do the pictures and the talks and all that, so can we just say that we're married? And um, if, if he says that to you, take a long walk and never come back, right? Because he's not just saying that the wedding's not worth it, he's saying that you're not worth it, okay? And so we can, I'm good debating when should somebody be baptized and how should you get baptized and who should baptize and all that kind of stuff. But the reality is that in Christianity, there is no debate about baptism itself in terms of whether or not it is uh, central to the invitation of the gospel. Every single Christian tradition and denomination throughout history and around the world practices baptism in one way or another. And That's what's so beautiful about it is that as we are united to Christ in baptism, we're also united to his body. This morning as I was finishing up prepping the sermon over our new uh, community and office space, many of you know that there's a Latino congregation that gathers for worship downstairs, Dios es amor, and uh, they're there kind of setting up and getting ready uh, for their worship service. And then even before they meet, there's a Korean fellowship that now is meeting up in our loft area. And uh, they're dropping their kids off here for, and Antioch Kids is incorporating and serving them but then our Korean brothers and sisters are holding a service there in their language. And so I get to write sermons now to Korean worship music. Um, and when we talk about this one baptism, this beautiful baptism of repentance and forgiveness and righteousness, when you start looking at these different groups, different cultures, different races, different colors, there's so much that we don't understand about one another, but I can look any one of our Latino or Korean brothers and sisters in the eye and recognize them as family, right? Even if we don't speak the same language or anything else, that's the kind of church I want to be part of, something that's way bigger, way more rooted, way broader than just my own personal preferences or that sort of thing. And so to those who are followers of Jesus and haven't been baptized, your time has come. Repent and be baptized. On June 24th in the Deschutes River, your family will be there to celebrate with you. Quit shacking up with Jesus and put the ring on. It's a gift. It's a gift. Last couple things. Two followers of Jesus who have been baptized. Remember when I said, have you repented? And the answer is like, yeah, I repented back in fifth grade at church camp when I prayed the prayer, but I also need to continue to repent day after day and week after week and year after year. 
Well, I want to say, ask you the same question. Have you been baptized? Yeah. But notice we're calling the sermon be baptized, not just get baptized. Are you living baptized? Are, are you continually dying to yourself? Changing your mind about who's God around here. Trusting in the work and the person of Jesus. Reorienting your gospel. So the idea was never that just that you would get baptized. The idea is that you would now be baptized. That it's a gift not just that we receive one time, but it's a new identity and a new life. Exact same way we talk about marriage. Yes, you got married. Getting married is actually the easy part. Being married, living married, growing in health and wholeness and maturity in your marriage. That's the whole point. So, for some of you, you were baptized years and years ago as little kids or whatever it was, and you've forgotten what it means. The invitation is to continue to receive the grace of God in your baptismal identity as those joined together with him. And then the second thing I would say to Christians who have been baptized is that central to Jesus' commission of his disciples is not just that we would be baptized, but that we would go and baptize others. And so at Antioch, one of the ways that we love to celebrate this is that it's not just pastors or staff members or elders that baptize people. It's any disciple of Jesus is called and commissioned to baptize other disciples. And what this does for me, not just as Pastor Pete, but as Pete who lives in, in the cul-de-sac on the east side, I begin to start thinking, which of my neighbors might I get the chance to baptize one day? Now, I can't save them or anything like that. But I wonder if I were to pray faithfully and if Jen and I were to open up our homes and lives and practice gracious Christian hospitality, and if we were to begin to love our neighbors really well, and maybe we would get a chance then to share with them the good news about Jesus and his hope for humanity and his restoration for the world, and maybe the Holy Spirit would convict them of their sin and open them up to receive his kingdom, and maybe they would even come to Antioch and hear me preach, and maybe they would even want to come and to receive baptism themselves. That starts opening up this whole new world of what it means for me to be, to live baptized as a disciple, also invited to make more disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this, just isn't, this isn't just for varsity Christians. For anyone that would call themselves a disciple of Jesus, that's part of what this is intended to look like. That we are getting to announce and share the good news of Christ and participate in baptizing others. Now for parents, I think that begins with us at home. And uh, our kids haven't been baptized yet. I'm waiting for them to ask. Waiting for them to express interest and want to know what this is all about and and when that time comes, then we'll have those conversations. But for Jen and I, the day where we get to baptize our kids, Lord willing, um, that's a day I'm not just excited as a father, 
but actually fulfilling part of my commission as a disciple. Okay? And so this conversation starts at home. So, to those Christians who haven't been baptized, get baptized. Uh, for those Christians who have been baptized, be baptized, live baptized. And finally, to anybody who wouldn't consider themselves a follower of Jesus, that you're here as a guest, as a seeker, as a skeptic, as somebody who's got some questions and some baggage or whatever it is, um, I would say to you the same thing that Jesus and the apostles said to their hearers. There is good news. The God who made you, the God who knows you, the God who has entered into humanity to join with you in his great love wants to save your soul, to give you a new name, to invite you into a new life with him forever. And he never promises that it's going to be an easy life. But he promises that he will be with you. So who are you going to trust more than Jesus? He's, if he's inviting you to himself today, say yes. So we're going to come and close our time together in the, uh, at the communion table as we always do. And I want to invite you to come this morning again receiving grace, the grace of God that is in Jesus and his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us. For us, communion isn't a metaphor but it's actually an invitation to come and to dine, to be with Jesus together. So take a moment, either at the table and pray by yourself or with a friend or with your family, or you can take the bread and cup back to your, your seat. Don't just walk through this ritualistically, but actually uh, receive an invitation to come, to dine, to be with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Will you stand with me? Father God, we are incredibly grateful for the blessing of life with you and that you in your great love have accepted us as your own, have adopted us as your sons and as your daughters to be part of your life, to be part of your mission. And Lord, we want so badly to live as those reconciled to you so that we can be part of your work of reconciling the world to yourself. And so we thank you for this space and this time right now, for your presence here with us, that you aren't just an idea, but you are our Father, our good Father, who knows what we need, even before we ask. I pray that you would give us the faith to repent. You would give us the courage to listen and obey. And that by your spirit, you would open our eyes to how much we are loved and accepted just as you love and accept your son. So I pray that we would live baptized this week, giving away our lives that we might find new life in you and join you in your work of giving life to the world. We love you, we trust you. We declare Jesus as Lord.